Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Kostin, ProPublica's Dara Lind. There has been an interesting uh, chain reaction of comments uh, stemming from originally it was Nick Cannon went on a on a podcast. And then um, what did he say? What, what happened, Jane? So it, it was a bad sign when he was joined by uh, Professor Griff, for those who may be aware of the rap group Public Enemy. Um, he was kicked out in the late 1980s for being a rabid anti-Semite. So first, let's talk about what Nick Cannon said that resulted in him getting fired from his improv show, Wild and Out, a program when I worked at MTV appeared to be on 24 hours a day. And his commentary was not just rapidly anti-Semitic uh, and also very anti-white in a very specific way. One of his comments he made is, um, you can't be anti-Semitic when we are the Semitic people. African-Americans are the Semitic people. When we are the same people who they want to be, that's our birthright. We are the true Hebrews. And this happened a couple of days after um, Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Deshaun Jackson shared a quote on Instagram that he thought was attributed to Adolf Hitler, which is bad, but it actually comes from um, Louis Farrakhan, which is also bad, in which he said that black people are the real children of Israel and that Jewish people are trying to achieve world domination and extort America. So what does this mean, this thing about the real children of Israel and the, and the real... Because obviously world domination, I understand, but there's a more specific and to right. me unfamiliar claim being advanced here. So this all goes back to the legacy of, in some ways, Nation of Islam, but also groups that came before Nation of Islam. Namely, um, you may, most people may not have heard of this organization, the Moorish Science Temple, which was set up by Drew Ali, who then uh, one of his disciples who believed himself to be a reincarnation of Drew Ali, Wallace Fard Mohammed, then helped founded Nation of Islam. And it gets very complicated and the relationships between these groups is complex. But among these belief systems is that African-Americans are the true, quote unquote, lost found Nation of Islam. That is um, the idea that African-Americans in America and black people writ large are the real Semites and the true in, in some senses, the real, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this because it is inane and stupid, but it is the idea that African-Americans are the true Jews in some senses and that Jewish people writ large, have essentially wrongly taken on the mantle of being Semites, of being truly a part of the lost tribes of Israel. So it's like a it's like a stolen valor. That's the yes, in some senses. And so it's but, but I think stolen valor in like combined with a longstanding 
desire to reclaim like deep roots of a black identity and like a deep history of black civilization. Right. And it all stems from, um, you know, you see the origins of Nation of Islam in the early 1930s in Chicago. And so it's millions of African-Americans are moving to Chicago as part of the Great Migration. And they are coming to Chicago in the midst of political racism in the midst of Jim Crow laws in the midst of, you know, Chicago's own lengthy history of racism that many people would have experienced, uh, millions of people would have experienced very directly. Nation of Islam is the argument that actually you are uniquely special, that white people have stolen something from you. And I think it's actually worthwhile going into a little bit of what Nation of Islam believes, because some of this that you see, you know, I wanted to make the point that a lot of this that you get from Nick Cannon or even from people who have never read an issue of Final Call, which is Nation of Islam's newspaper that they try to hand to black people whenever they see them. A lot of this has filtered outward. Um, I did some research and there are references to Drew Ali and Jay-Z songs. There are references to the concepts of Nation of Islam that filter outwards and it stops being so direct and it starts being about black uplift, which is not exactly true. So I, I want to quote briefly from Louis Farrakhan, who refounded Nation of Islam in 1977 um, because he did not believe that the leadership of the organization was truly representative of Elijah Muhammad, who is probably most famous for being, um, you know, kind of the face of Nation of Islam for a, about 30 to 40 years after Wallace Fard Muhammad founded it, but he disappeared in 1934 and no one knows what happened to him. So uh, I'll quote from, Far from Elijah Muhammad and then I'm going to quote from Farrakhan briefly. So Elijah Muhammad says, <clears throat> the black man is the original man. From him came all brown, yellow, red and white people. By using a special method of birth control law, the black man was able to produce the white race. This method of birth control was developed by a black scientist known as Yakub, you may have heard that term, who envisioned making and teaching a nation of people who would be uh, diametrically opposed to the original people, a race of people who would one day rule the original people and the earth for a period of 6,000 years. Yakub promised his followers that he would graft a nation from his own people and he would teach them how to rule his people through a system of tricks and lies where they would use deceit to divide and conquer and divide the unity of darker people, put brother against one another and act as mediators and rule both sides. And so when Tim Russert uh, of Meet the Press, the late Tim Russert, asked Farrakhan about this in an interview that must have been truly fascinating, he says that it's not a silly question. It's a scientific question that white people came from the original people, black people. And then he asked, you know, the teaching of Elijah Muhammad, which is that white people are blue eyed devils. And that, you know, well, you have not been saints in the way you've acted towards the darker people of the world, even towards your own people. And so a lot of this, it, you know, Elijah Muhammad, his own history and his own history with Malcolm X, a lot of this gets transmogrified outwards. And so you will hear, um, you know, we even saw images last week of NBA, play, uh, you know, NBA legends like Allen Iverson being so excited to meet Louis Farrakhan because, the language of Nation of Islam is transmogrified into one of black uplift. It is a language that teaches African-Americans to respect themselves. Um, Adam Serwer at The Atlantic wrote a great piece a couple of years ago when there were members of the Women's March with close ties to Farrakhan. And there was a lot of criticism of that in, and talking about how in some neighborhoods, Nation of Islam, you know, people come back from prison having joined Nation of Islam and suddenly they're clean cut. They stop using drugs. They start wearing bow ties and dress shirts. And there's this idea that, you know, they're teaching this uplift of African-Americans, but it's a canard because it's an uplift that can only happen through the idea that white people are inferior, that you know, Malcolm X, as he put as he put it, thoughtful white people know they are inferior to black people and that um, Jewish people have committed endless offenses against African-Americans and are the people who are lying to African-Americans and dividing them against one another. They are the people who are in Farrakhan's terms, convincing black people to become lesbians and homosexuals or trans people. They are the people who are truly fooling African-Americans. And there's a book, um, The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, 
referenced last week as someone telling me on Twitter, oh, you have to read this book, to which I said, absolutely not. And it argues that Jewish people were the secret force behind the slave trade. And a third volume claims that Jewish people were responsible for the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, which would be the second iteration of the Klan, a famously anti-Semitic hate group. But Farrakhan explains, Nation of Islam explains, that, oh, their anti-Semitism is just a ruse to hide how they were controlled by Jews. And Henry Louis Gates made the point in a 1992 article that this was an effort of fomenting ethnic isolationism to drive Jewish people and black people apart, to essentially say that, you know, when these groups are isolated from one another, when they're targeting one another, they can't work together as they did so often in the 1950s and 1960s and were targeted by white supremacists for doing so. You know, there were a number of Jewish Americans who were murdered by the Klan during the civil rights movement for standing up for African-Americans. And so Gates makes the point, and I'll drop the piece in um, show notes, about how the book is one of the most sophisticated instances of hate literature yet compiled. And we're still seeing its ripple effects. You know, if you talk to people who believe this, sometimes they'll reference the book, sometimes they'll reference Farrakhan, but sometimes it's just something that they've heard or just some like a conspiracy theory that they've heard pieces of. And so it's an extraordinarily pernicious uh, belief system, one that also, and I, I've been trying to make this point, it eliminates the existence of African-American Jewish people, of which there are many. And it basically means that for African-American Jews, they are forced to, in some ways, choose between being black and Jewish when that's that's a canard in and of itself. But <laughs> Nick Cannon is not in, like, he's not a nation of Islam person right so i actually um i tried to figure that out because he talks about how he wants to wear a turban more on television um right. i did some research on this and he talks about how like you know he doesn't do that because he's worried about what people might think about it um but noi doesn't so, wear turbans yeah there is something happening here a kind of a um second order vibration right some Farrakhan ideas out to people who are not like strictly speaking NOI followers. Right. They don't believe that Elijah Muhammad lives on a spaceship that cost $15 billion and is circling the globe. But it gets into a lot of these viewpoints, um, you know, whether they're part of NOI or kind of transmogrified away from that are, for instance, Nick Cannon believes in melanin theory, which is the idea that a higher level of melanin makes African-Americans or darker skinned people smarter or physically superior and even gives some supernatural abilities. And so um, there is, you know, there is a pretty prominent former professor at City College of New York named Leonard Jeffries, who talked about this a lot. And his um, nephew, Hakeem Jeffries, <laughs> is in the U.S. House of Representatives. And so um, he actually lost his job at um, Leonard Jeffries as chairman of the Black Studies Department because he said Jewish people funded the Atlantic slave trade and believed that black people, because of melanin, had special abilities. And so he believed, you know, white people are ice people while black people are sun people who are compassionate and peaceful. And it's interesting because you see these views and these ideas percolating, especially in areas where and especially among people for whom Afrocentrism offers a sense of self-respect. But it's a self-respect built on an understanding that is false and racist. Right. So I, I think that uh, the concept of kind of bespoke Afrocentrism is something that we've we've touched on a little bit on the podcast, talking about kind of hotep theory and all that kind of thing. But it's worth I mean, I think it's worth understanding that what's going on here is both I saw I saw a piece this week about kind of the conspiracy singularity of like a lot of different conspiracy theory communities and this is outside specifically like afrocentric or specifically you know black conspiracy theories um kind of coming together in online spaces and QAnon and the anti-vaccine movement cross-pollinating and a lot of you know a lot of different uh hypertrophic explanations for the world, uh, you know, finding common cause. And I think what's happening, uh, I think that this is both w kind of an expression of that or a version of it and ties into a specifically, you know, 
Black American tradition of trying to find a history where one can get it, in which the people who are autodidacts, you know, there's a certain like autodidact tradition of, you know, reading the books in the Afrocentric bookstore and coming to your own theory of how exactly, you know, ancient, the the ancient Egyptians and uh, the kind of uh, the like Malian Empire and all that kind of stuff tie into other things that are objectively conspiracy theory bases. So it's not that surprising that Louis Farrakhan and, and NOI are being treated less as sources of kind of religious knowledge here than of a different explanation for the current state of Black people uh, and a way to reclaim dignity for Black people in the same way that, you know, the efforts to emphasize the African heritage of ancient Egyptians can go down in, you know, a kind of alternate Afrocentric history theory. Right. I also think that this is happening. I think that this, you know, something that people I've seen some people claiming like this seems very sudden, but it's not. This has been a kind of percolating conversation, a percolating belief system for African-Americans in the United States and elsewhere since the 1930s and under and even earlier, because um, the Moorish Science Temple has an older history. And that is you know, one of the predecessor organizations of Nation of Islam that holds that African-Americans are Moors descended from the Moorish peoples who were um, kicked out of Spain. And this understanding that all dark skinned people should be united and you know, should be one. And so it is that sense, as Dara put it, of a s- attempt to develop a sense of self-respect, attempt to develop a sense of history in which African-Americans and Africans in general were not colonized, were never defeated, were wrongly treated as slaves while being in actuality the true descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. But that in itself necessitates an ideology that holds that it's white people who are the ice people. It's white people who are inferior. There's no idea in this that what if everyone were pretty much on an equivalent plane and people are sometimes predisposed to evil? There is, but there's an understanding of like, no, 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 this happened because, you know, a black scientist who created white people used them to split us apart. And that there, you know, there's a conspiracy to explain this. And, you know, Conspiracy theories I've written a lot about are means to explain the unexplainable, and they're inherently self-sealing. So when you tell people that Jews did not, in, in fact, play a big role in the Atlantic slave trade, you know, you get people being like, that's what they want you to think, because, again, they're self-sealing. But it's essentially racial QAnon. It's a, you know, it's an all encompassing theory that explains everything. And there is an entity that's coming to save us. And but in this case, what's coming to save us is ourselves against white people. But it also it, you know, I think that something that people and this is why I thought that it was particularly harmful for Dwayne Wade to tweet in support of Nick Cannon in a tweet he later deleted and tried to explain for you know, saying like you've been standing up for us, keep fighting. When one of um, Farrakhan and Nation of Islam's most pernicious viewpoints is that Jews convince black people to be LGBT, and that it's because black men can't get jobs because of the Jews that black women become gay, because that's how that works. So I think it's it's really worth talking about this as a conspiracy theory, but a conspiracy theory, like all conspiracy theories that has victims, that has um, true harms. You know, it was Elijah Muhammad who invited members of the American Nazi Party to meet with Nation of Islam because in the early 1960s, including George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of the American Nazi Party, because he viewed them as having similar interests. And, you know, if you find yourself having similar interests to the American Nazi Party, you fucked up. Like that's just how that works. <laughs> so, so that, that that's actually exactly where I wanted to to take this, right? Which is that the sort of macro context is that you have cosmopolitan and nationalist tendencies in all different kinds of communities, right? And because America is mostly a country of white people, mostly a country of white Christian people, the sort of most prominent political conflict in American history 
is between a kind of white or white Christian nationalist, ethnic nationalist vision of the country and a cosmopolitan integrationist alternative. But that's just because like white Christian people are in the numerical majority, right? And the same conceptual conflicts exist inside all different kinds of, of communities. And, you know, something I, I was reading a couple of weeks ago, uh, Eldridge Cleaver's uh, bi- biography, and he is, you know, he's very critical of the mainstream civil rights movement, which at the time, uh, there was a lot of Jewish involvement in, because I think mainstream Jewish community leaders in the United States saw a vested interest in a cosmopolitan vision of the country that naturally allied them with, with Martin Luther King. There were a lot of rabbis in the the march to Selma with with the late John Lewis and and, and stuff like that. Uh, but Cleaver is saying that like all these guys are trash, um, and he writes very admiringly about revisionist Zionists who at that time were a little bit marginal even in Israel, but are currently the sort of dominant political tendency in in Israel. And Benjamin Netanyahu and, and his family are very much a, a part of that. And Cleaver was saying, it's like, well, we need that, but for us. And it's not at all like an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but nationalism's have this like deep affinity for anti-Semitism to the point where Netanyahu is allied in the international arena with lots of people like Viktor Orban, who seem to be anti-Semites, right? It's it's the same as like Farrakhan and, and the American Nazi party, right? And it's not, it's not like even a horseshoe theory thing, really. It's that there's like a deep conceptual affinity between different strands of ethnic nationalism, where they can come into tension with one another if there's a conflict over something concrete, whether that's like water rights in the West Bank or like who owns which stores on the south side of Chicago. But on an abstract level, there's, there's this kind of deep alignment and hostility to a contrary cosmopolitan type vision of the world that, you know, exists. So it's like the same tension exists everywhere, even as the kind of specific instantiations of it vary quite, quite dramatically. And when you had after, after, as you were saying, Jane, like, it's not sudden, none of these ideas are new. But part of what happened is that after George Floyd was killed, we had a lot of protests, a lot more people talking about a lot more stuff. And just like a lot of Everybody is like giving their opinions more than they used to. Um, and so some of these ideas come out of the the woodwork that I think people are not as familiar with the fact that like in African-American communities, just like in all communities everywhere, there is like a disagreement about what are you trying to, what does it mean to like stand up for your rights? Does that mean a cosmopolitan, inclusive, egalitarian vision, or does it mean a nationalistic vision? We should probably take a break, but there's something kind of latent in what you're saying, Matt, that I think we want to, that makes sense to bring to the fore about power. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So something that uh, I was thinking about a little as we kind of prepared for this episode is that the original meaning of woke before it was used as a term by like people uh, right of center and far right to deride uh, white liberals, you know, had a certain connotation of being skeptical of conventional wisdom, skeptical of received wisdom in a way that shade could shade into conspiracy theory it has like honestly it had a lot more in common with the kind of wake up sheeple idea that you see in in like white online spaces um yeah the people who used woke when i was growing up were the people who were kind of convinced that the government put fluoride in the water to sterilize black men right. like that what that's what woke meant among certain communities that i grew up around and like the thing about that is that yes the substantive beliefs that are associated with that are as often as not just wild you know just like wild ass stuff but as a her, like as a hermeneutic of skepticism as a like don't believe everything you read don't believe what they tell you like there's a certain appeal to that and this is the way that conspiracy theories often work right you say you're just asking questions you say you just you're not going to take for granted what people in power want you to believe and you end up adopting a totally different set of dogma that is every bit as inflexible and rigid as anything that you know you were being asked to believe in the first place but at a time when there's a lot more openness to talking about power and who wields it in terms of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the broadening, I think, in a lot of ways of people's willingness to talk about systemic racism in particular and systemic oppression more broadly, it's not actually that surprising that people who have very robust theories of who has power and should be forced to give it up that are wrong or conspiratorial or bigoted see a new opportunity for themselves because they're seeing not just a greater openness to like accounts of how things got to be the way they are generally, but they're seeing a willingness to talk about systems of oppression in a way that's going to sound very congenial to conspiracy theorists who have always believed that there is a deliberate cabal of people trying to keep them down. Well, and this is where I think we get to a sort of a, a tougher kind of problem. Um, I think we, we we forgot at the top of the show to even say who Nick Cannon is. Um, I think he is most prominently now the host of The Masked Singer, uh, which I had not seen until uh, researching for this episode. Um, and frankly, like, I... I was not super aware of what was going on here until like I saw one day on Twitter, uh, several different black writers who I follow were sort of very, very piously denouncing anti-Semitism. And like in a non-specific way, they made me wonder, I was like, what is going on here? Like what, what what's happening? So I, so I asked in the Vox Slack and I, I think it was Jane explained it to me, you know, and it was an interesting instinctive reaction. Tara and I are both, uh, Jewish. And so uh, I would say that the response on the writers I follow was that was that this was a Shonda, right? That like they felt the need to speak up because they felt nobody was actually questioning like their bona fides on the Jewish question. Uh, but like they felt the need to distance themselves from this thing that was happening among third tier black celebrities. But it's on some level like not a big deal as far as I'm concerned. Like I, I I saw some people, you know, some like cranky Jewish writers being like, how come no one's da 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 da? But like, 
it's fine. Like we're fine. Jews in America. Right. No, I definitely. <laughs> I, I do saw some like, why is there less comment about Nick Cannon's comments than about like some, you know, than than about, you know, some of the things that have been that NFL players have said. And it's like this is one of those where if the dude has lost his has like lost his job or you know suffered like deliberate employment consequences uh that's that's the basic explanation for why there isn't more condemnation of it well, he like, lost one of his jobs co- but not the right. other no but so yes for, for but- me actually but, but so here's the issue right um at least as i see it american jews are not so um objectively threatened that we particularly need to like stamp out expressions of anti-Semitic views on the part of television show hosts. But I find it like not good (laughs) that people have those views. And so like, I would actually like them to change their mind. And like in a weird way, a comprehensive campaign to like fully deplatform Nick Cannon and wreck his livelihood would just confirm the like suspicion that the Jews are pulling all the strings here, you know? So like, I, I, I prefer to like have this show and like do things and try to get people to see that like this is not correct because I don't, I don't actually feel like hyper vulnerable on this score. Like unless he's off television, you know, I, I'm going to have a huge personal problem. It's just that it's not right. And. It stems from the fact that, like, we've moved to some more sophisticated understandings of race and racism and and bias in America that in a weird way, though, I think has caused us to leave behind some, like, more simplistic ones that are also relevant, which is that, like, American Jews are not subject to structural or systemic disadvantage. Um, we are actually, in material terms, a relatively privileged group of people with higher than average incomes, educational attainment, um, overrepresentation in the media, overrepresentation in the United States Senate, you know, like a large amount of like objective community power. But, like, we're still a numerically small minority of people who other people can say shitty, mean things about or be biased toward. And, like, it can hurt our feeling. <laughs> like, it's it's just still bad, right? It's, like, old-fashioned. I, I think John McCorder has proposed that we, like, bring back the term prejudice to refer to the sort of going away meaning of racism to be just like interpersonal hostility and being shitty uh because like it is still a relevant consideration right even though you couldn't like drop some map and be like aha here's the systemic oppression of jewish people in america like we're doing fine but it's like still just don't be an asshole uh i'm gonna push back on that a little bit because i think that right. i think that the group pro asshole <laughs> <laughs> I think that the point is what we've seen. Um, one of the pieces that I'll drop in the show notes was writing about the conspiratorial kind of an- black anti-Semitism that has had real impact specifically on Orthodox communities and Orthodox Jews in New York um, at, in the third quarter of 2019 last year. Hate crimes against Jewish people made up nearly half of hate crimes and complaints. And you, this was my piece was written in January and between December 23rd, 2019. And when I wrote the piece in January, there were eight, 13 anti-Semitic attacks that took place in New York. And so much of this is aimed at Hasidic Jews and the Orthodox communities living in New York. And so I think that for people who are visibly Jewish, the iconography of this kind of anti-Semitism is particularly dangerous and particularly harmful. And I think that that's really important to remember. And especially because anytime I, I and I, I speak about this personally only because I've written a lot about the dangerous fo- facing Orthodox folks. And every time I do so, I get emails like <laughs> that always start out with, I think all hate crimes are unacceptable, but the Orthodox communities are taking over my town slash school district. And, you know, I this woman emailed me last week and I responded with, you, know, you probably should have stopped at the butt. But the idea that, you know, the Orthodox aren't victims, they're taking over our schools. This is why angry people are targeting them. It's not, you know, if it's a hate crime, it's only because the Orthodox started it. 
And so I think that these conspiracy theories, um, you know, the the people who were responsible for the attacks in Jersey City last year, which um, you know resulted in the murder of four people at a kosher supermarket, they were part of an extremist wing of the Black Hebrew Israelites, who again are a group who believe that they are the actual descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, and that Jewish people are imposters, or as one acolyte put it, Negroes are the real Jews, and they use terminology calling Jewish people part of the synagogue of Satan, which interesting is one of those moments in which black anti-Semites and white nationalist anti-Semites all come together on really hating Jewish people. It's like a terrible version of that two hands clasping meme. And so I think that this kind of anti-Semitism, yes, when you know Nick Cannon is kind of our, our, a fourth tier black person, but at the same time, these types of sentiments, if it's, you know, if you're hearing it from an Eagles wide receiver or former NBA players, if you have really well-known people, um, really well-known black figures who are so excited to see Louis Farrakhan, if people who are involved with the Women's March have apparently a complete impossible instance, you know, cannot denounce Louis Farrakhan despite him being racist, anti-Semitic, and homophobic all at once, I think that that's the concern here. It's not necessarily who's saying it's it's how pernicious this is. It's you know when I talk about how evil anti-Semitism is, I get a lot of responses like, oh, the Jews are making you say that. And I'm like, well, not not as far as I know. I have not yet received any messages um, from Mossad telling me to say these things. But I think that's why to me, this is this is a giant problem. I think that there's a sense and we see this sometimes um, when I talk about white nationalism or white supremacist ideologies, the idea of like, oh, there aren't that many of them. And they're only you know, they're only famous because you bring this up. And, you know, that's not that big. But I'm like, it it, it is a pernicious and dangerous ideology that puts real people at risk. And it, it, the victims in the case of Jersey City were Orthodox Jews in the case of the Tree of Life shooting, which was committed by kind of a right leaning white supremacist. Those folks were reformed Jews. But the people who are victimized by this tend to be Jewish people who are practicing the religion. And I think that there there's a means by which some of these views, they filter out and filter out and filter out, but they still turn a story of black uplift into a story of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism with a real cost and a real body count. So I don't think that those two things are necessarily in conflict, right? I think we're essentially talking about the problems of a prejudice without power, at least in the systemic sense. And like, in like the same way that, you know, prejudice in the hands of the powerful leads to like particular predictable outcomes, you can understand that there are some cases in which a prejudice that is held primarily by those without power is going to lead to some like, long tail issues. You know, conspiracy theories that are often held by people who are mentally ill, like, or people who are who are drawn to extremism or violence, like, that's going to become a problem for like actual, you know, confrontation or incidences of violence or that kind of thing. Not to say that they're not to say that people who are mentally ill have a propensity for violence. But if you have kind of comorbidities among people whose behavior becomes unpredictable, the idea that you're going to have something erupting into view is fairly obvious. Like there is a wildly disproportionate amount of anti-Semitic graffiti in Washington, D.C. to the actual like polled views of the people, not just the people of D.C., but the people of D.C. who would do graffiti. But there are, all it takes is a few individuals who are extremely devoted to writing things about the Jews in Sharpie on bus stops. And so that's the kind of thing that you're talking about, Jane. That is a way in which anti-Semitism can manifest that's extremely harmful to Jews, even if it's not primarily, even if it isn't being held, even, like resulting in generations long wealth gaps, that kind of thing. The other problem here is the relationship between specifically white nationalism and anti-Semitism. And that's, Matt, when you were talking about the reaction of, you know, a lot of like black writers being that this is a Shonda, that's immediately where I thought, because so much of the reaction among the black intelligentsia was, you know, to the kind of the like, oh, let's, you know, we need to be extremely proactive and pious in denouncing this wasn't a, oh, no, people will think we're anti-Semites if we say this. It was, hey, please think twice about 
putting forward a narrative that the Jews control things because the other people who are super devoted to believing that the Jews control things are KKK and David Duke type folks who don't particularly love us either. And so the idea that giving into these explanations of oh, other people are, the Jews in particular, or other people in general are trying to keep us down, is going to ultimately empower people who would like you to be annihilated as well, is I think the other thing going on here. White nationalism currently exists in this weird space where its most explicit proponents are marginalized, but as a movement, it is widely understood to be gaining power and expressing influence in uh ways that you don't usually see extremist movements, you know, expressing like not getting the widespread, the like wholehearted condemnation of the president of the United States, for example. And even though it's still acting in some ways like a prejudice without power and has that kind of easily, the kind of easily shading into violence of people who don't have any other, you know, quote unquote, legitimate way to express their views there's definitely a concern that anything that would be seen as playing into their that narrative of how the world works is going to give even more power to a movement that's already gaining ground. Exactly. And I think it, it's worth saying that, like, these types of beliefs are I just keep thinking about the experiences of African-American Jews, you know, whether or not they're Ethiopian Jews who were able to emigrate to Israel and perhaps the United States or African-American Jewish people with no ties to Israel whatsoever. One of the most harmful attributes of this kind of anti-Semitism is that it attempts in some ways to shove Jews out of the black community, A which I think that that's so deeply harmful and dangerous. And it's so, you know, I think it's so, you know, I, I keep going back to how, um, Part of this is, you know, the nature of conspiracy theories. And one of the people who defended Deshaun Jackson, the Eagles player, was Stephen Jackson, who, you know, people may know now a lot for um, being a good friend of George Floyd and speaking out about his death. And Stephen Jackson was saying, you know, you know, he's just he's just speaking the truth, the facts that he knows and tries to educate others. And he goes on to, you know, who the Rothschilds are. They own all the banks. I haven't said one thing that's untrue yet, which I'm like, you know, besides all of the, what you just said, sure. But I think that it's interesting because some of the specifics of these conspiracy theories, um, it actually, to me, is just as pernicious as like a QAnon, where people are referencing the same bit players, um, whether it's the, here, the Rothschilds, or for QAnon, JFK Jr., who they believe is somehow alive. And so it's this language of people speaking to one another. And because of this self-sealing mechanism of conspiracy theories, it's this idea that, you know, the only reason people are speaking out against this is because they're trying to shut them up. Um, the rapper Ice Cube, who's been revealed to be tremendously anti-Semitic, um, you know, when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar spoke out against anti-Semitism, you know, saying that this was, you know, anti-Semitism was getting in the way of fighting racism and that there's a means of standing up against prejudice altogether. Ice Cube essentially was saying, like, who paid you? Um, you know, essentially calling him a Judas figure. Like, you were, you know, how much silver did you receive to say this? This idea I that... I think it's fair to say as a general life tip that if you find yourself in the position of having to, uh, of trying to attack Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, nope. you should sit down and reconsider your life choices. Yeah. He, he will oh. skyhook over <laughs> you immorally. But this idea of this, you know, these conspiracy theories that any means of trying to break conspiracy theories is proof of the theory itself. It's why conspiracy theories are so dangerous and why they are so pernicious and why anti-Semitism as a conspiracy theory is so very violent and dangerous to so many people. But, you know, the, if you um, read uh, the recent interview in uh, New York Magazine that Eric Levitz did with uh, David Shore, he talks, you know, not about anti-Semitism. He talks some about racism, but in a, se in a separate section of it, something he's just saying is that there are people who have a more zero-sum view of the world, and there are people who have a more positive-sum view of the world. And this tends to correlate with educational attainment and has increasingly begun to stratify along partisan lines. Right. And one thing that you have in the United States is cross cutting issues about about race. Right. So you have 
85, 90% of African Americans voting for Democrats, even though a lot of African American people are working class, have lower levels of educational attainment, and have some of the same, I don't know, like personality attributes of working class white people. But working class white people are often inflected with anti-Black racism, uh, which working class Black people are not. But a similar enjoyment of zero-sum worldviews and the idea that if something is bad, there must be someone who is like specifically benefiting in an offsetting way is a sort of a powerful global concept, right? So you have like the big thing in, in anti-immigrant thinking uh, is that obviously many people who move to the United States benefit enormously from doing so. Like that's really clear and everybody agrees on it. So one group of people has just a default assumption that if that's true, then there must be commensurate losses, right, that somebody is incurring. And then the suspicion is that you are the one who is losing. And then the other, like the cosmopolitan worldview that like just comes so naturally to me is that no, like this is beneficial, that if people who move from Haiti to New York can increase their income sixfold, then that's going to be good, not just for the Haitian people, but for the world. Right. That like everybody's talents are being developed. Everybody has more opportunity to buy things. Everyone has a better chance of becoming a great inventor or discoverer of things. And that all kinds of like structures of oppression are just like actually bad. Right. Like, even if some individual people somewhere may derive benefits from them, that like in a global sense, it's not just morally wrong or exploitative, but like it is, it is actually bad for the world to have people in a state of, of repression. Uh, but that's not a universal like diagnosis of the human condition. There's a lot of group versus group thinking among all kinds of people. Fortunately, people like that tend to have trouble collaborating with each other. Uh, so it's like possible to uh, defeat them in concrete political contexts. But I just I, I feel like that's a lot of what you see in this kind of thing that it's like, obviously, uh, the state, like the living conditions of certain racial groups in the United States of America are like not what they should be. Right. And so then there's a, a suspicion that like, well, that must be because some puppet master is is benefiting from this situation, rather than it just being bad. Right. I think that that idea of attempting to find a responsible party for why things are bad, I think that the nature of conspiracy theories is that you have a victim and you have a perpetrator. Whereas in actual life, as anyone knows, sometimes you're both, sometimes you're neither, sometimes things happen that don't make sense. But it's interesting. Um, there was a piece um, earlier this week on Last Week Tonight, the HBO show with John Oliver, where he goes into a little bit of the research that I've talked about as well, is that there are a lot of conspiracy theories around, say, the JFK assassination, but no conspiracy theories around the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. We just essentially were like, the guy who did it was trying to impress Jodie Foster and Ron Reagan survived. And we all relatively moved on um, with the exception of the injury suffered by the Secret Service agent involved in this. But because you know, conspiracy theories tend to mesh on to specific instances that are truly horrific. You know, there are 9-11 conspiracy theories and there are conspiracy theories around, you know, the moon landing, which I mean, obviously not a horrific instance, but something that for many people seemed in some ways unbelievable. So it's a, you know, in some ways, conspiracy theories are a means of flattening. They're a means by which we can make sense of things. We don't understand how it happened, whether for good or for ill. And so in kind of the black anti-Semitism, there's a sense of how could these how could this happen to millions of people? How could slavery have happened? How could Jim Crow have happened? How could the horrors of you know the hundreds of lynchings that took place from the end of the Civil War until the early 1980s have happened? And rather than believe in kind of the understanding of systemic racism, which can be committed by people who have no real claim to it and aren't doing it in a dastardly means, but are just merely part of a system that continues to pervade it. There's an idea of like, no, we have there. There's this entity and they did it. 
it was just this entity. And if we can just blame this entity, use it as a scapegoat, then that that makes it make sense. And we can lift ourselves up by putting down this other entity. And so I think that that's one of the things, you know, how this come back, comes back to this idea of an attempt to create a worldview in which the horrors of what may have happened or something happening that doesn't make any sense is the responsibility of a singular party and a singular entity with a name and a face. All right. Should we do do break? Do, do a white paper? Yeah. Okay. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We have for you today, Do Youth Employment Programs Work? Evidence from the New Deal by Anna Azer, Shari Eli, Adriana Yaris Mooney, and Kiang Lee. Um, they are looking at uh, a rich, it's a cool administrative data thing. So they're looking at the Civilian Conservation Corps, which is a kind of famous New Deal program. Um, it did stuff that, it frankly sounds nutty by the modern day. They like took young people and they sent them to army supervised work camps. camps. <laughs> to army supervised work camps in rural areas. You read about the details of this program and you think like, this is the kind of thing that is remembered nostalgically in like American historical memory. But not only would conservatives like lose their shit at this level of spending on direct government employment, but progressives would also lose their shit if you propose this. Right, like in order to be enrolled in the program, you had to agree that 25 of the $30 you earned each month would be sent to a family member back home. Like there would be so many concerns about this, you know, increasing uh, like abusive situations and that sort of thing. Uh, Yeah, and so I don't know, it's weird. So I'm I'm, I'm in Maine, I went to Acadia National Park. Uh, They had these like CCC uh, labor camp kids. They like built a lot of the infrastructure of the national park. It it all seems totally bizarre. Uh, But at any rate... The question is like, okay, did this accomplish anything? Obviously, it was short-term economic relief. Uh, These people um, who were in the program got food, they got money, their families got money. Uh, In the modern day, I think we would achieve direct relief during a recession by things like um, expanding food stamp eligibility uh, or the bonus unemployment insurance. I mean, we have these things going on now, and it's, it's a basic tension between conservatives don't like spending money and progressives like the welfare state. CCC was this like other way of doing it. Uh, But then the question is like, well, what was the impact on the people? And they show that there were a lot of sort of surprisingly long-term benefits, that if you look in the short term, the benefits seem pretty modest, um, although, you know, better than having no income. But over the longer term, you have uh, greatly improved life expectancy among CCC enrollees, um, as well as moderately higher, like, proclivity to enroll in the military during World War II, uh, moderately higher educational attainment, all kinds of just sort of broad long-term increases in in life trajectory. And then they compare this to a, a 1990s program called Job Corps that was sort of loosely modeled on on CCC and say that you can see some of the same benefits there. But then they argue that kind of like short-term RCT designs don't capture the full potential upside of something like this. It's weird because like they say like, it's like, okay, do youth job programs work? Um, Which I think when most people say something like, you know, instead of spending all this money on incarceration, we should have youth job programs, that this is not what they have in mind. I mean, I haven't, I haven't done right. it. They are not thinking sir. sending. Hey, but if it's like, in, right, they're not thinking sending kids to right, camp. Like, instead of prison, send them to a remote labor camp. I'm like, right. I don't. No, it, 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 it's fascinating. Um, I've been on a big Ken Burns kick recently, and we watched um the series that's on the Dust Bowl, which gets into this a little bit because that was an experience that the climactic impact of the Dust Bowl is just astronomical, and you people should go read more about it. 
But one of the things this gets into, I was particularly interested in the information about getting taller and living longer lives. And we've seen some like very stupid memes recently about how like, you know, people in the 1940s were much stronger and healthier than we are now. That is 100% not true. And especially because um, I think that the people who are able to be involved in these programs that were responsible for building roads in our national parks, responsible for uh, collecting slave narratives, for example, and recording them. It's how all-encompassing this program was. It's fascinating because this paper is a comprehensive assessment, but the CCC was truly comprehensive. And it was something where you you would, there were people, um, one of the, Nat, Ken Burns has a do, also a documentary series on the national parks, and one of the people interviewed about this. That one's really boring, It is though. not boring. We loved it. Um, it's beautiful, <laughs> and it right. made me want to buy Ansel Adams <laughs> photography. But one of the things he goes into is talking about how people were sending their kids because they're like, I can't feed you. We have no money whatsoever. We cannot feed you. And these are young boys, essentially young teens who were saying like, this is the first time I've had three square meals, even that concept in their lives. If you were born in say 1920, 1921, and you're going into the CCC in 1934, 1935, you're 14, 15 years old. And this is the first time you've had good food and you're doing out a lot of outdoor work. You are, you know, helping to construct or reconstruct a lot of the facilities that we've only recently started to rehab. But it it really is a program that I think that because it was in response to such a cataclysmic event that was the Great Depression and especially out west, the Dust Bowl, which kind of added on to the problems of that. I think that this in response was an, an equally comprehensive effort to undo some of the effects of the Great Depression. The interesting question here, though, and like to the author's credit, they're not saying like we can prove that youth job programs work because of the particular characteristics of the CCC. Like they do take their results and look at existing data sets of like more modern job core programs. And so there is a certain there there is some validity to the idea that you don't have to take kids and put them in a remote labor camp in order to or like kids, young, young adults. But what was particularly interesting about this is that like what the long-term health outcomes are much more apparent from the data they've collected than the short-term employment outcomes. If you not not like obviously once you're in the if you're employed by the CCC, yes, you're employed, but in the kind of years immediately after that, you know, if you look at like the 1940 census, people who had graduated from the CCC in the last couple of years were not necessarily more likely to be employed. And that's what we think of generally when we think about the utility of job programs. And the idea that it is worthwhile to do something that won't increase youth employment necessarily or like won't, you know, won't give you immediately better standing in the job market, but might improve your long term health outcome and income earning potential is just not a time horizon that policy not not just that policy today is made based on, but like if you had told FDR, hey, in, by signing the CCC into law, which, by the way, program created by executive order, thing I did not know, boggles the mind. Um, but if you had told FDR that like by doing this, you're not actually going to make these young men more appealing, more employable or, you know, give them or make them earn more money in the next few years. You're just going to make it possible for them to grow taller and live longer. I don't know that they necessarily that, that he would have necessarily signed that into law. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a weird one, but you know, but I mean, I do think it's worth taking seriously, right? Not just in an economic crisis, but to say, you know, you have a certain number of people, they're 16, 17 years old, and they are like not that good at school, and they don't really like it. And if you say to them, like, what you really ought to do is work harder for the next 18 months, and then go do more years of school. And they're like, oh, like, I really don't want to do that. Or they're 19, 20 years old, and they haven't gone to college, or they've dropped out of high school. And, you know, because the United States is an affluent society, they're not, like, immediately faced with starvation as a result of that. They have other family members, they have maybe little hustles they can get into, they can live in their mom's basement, like, you can get by, right? But I think for the same kinds of reasons that, like, mainstream bourgeois 
Americans encourage teenagers to go to college. It sort of it makes sense to encourage teenagers who don't want to go to college to like do something, right? And like something that's outdoorsy and involves physical labor rather than doing problem sets. Like like that could be good too, right? Like people like tastes differ, right? And I think the idea that like older teens should have some kind of structured activity in their life. Uh, the like older I get and the <laughs> deeper into the dad zone I get, you know, makes a lot of sense to this me. Is all, this is all deeply <laughs> dead. This is all yeah. this is all a lot of character building and a lot of asking people to cut down their own Christmas. That's trees. what I'm saying. Go go work in the countryside and build a national park. All right. <laughs> Or start a podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> sure. Appropriately socially distanced. Let's it's outdoors. It. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, Honestly, there are really, there are worse models yeah, it's for outdoors. a pandemic jobs program. Wear a mask, swing an axe. It's going to be great. Um, okay. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.